Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series A Father's Farewell, a study of the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son Timothy, and through him to all the sons and daughters of God. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We are going to be looking today at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Beginning at verse 8, we're going to look through verse 18. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. As uh, we're going to be continuing in our series that we're calling a, a Father's Farewell, as Paul's writing a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. Uh, it's actually the last words the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And so we're taking time to uh, work our way through this letter between now and early May. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 8 to 18. The verses are there in your booklet, and they will be up here on the screen. I'll be using the New International Version um, to teach from this morning. 2 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 8. Hear now the word of our Lord, our God, our Savior. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Well, I want to start by thanking Tony for teaching last week. Tony Marsh uh, stepped in and taught while I was gone. I was actually down in Florida for the ICC board retreat. And as I said, we had a fantastic discussion in our Connect group the other night. And I had a number of folks that even gave me feedback and said how good uh, Tony's teaching was last week on Habakkuk. And I thank him for teaching. Uh, I was actually gone down for a board retreat for International Christian Concern. I serve on the board of the persecuted church ministry that our church actually supports. We have been supporting them for a long time, and they invited me to be on the board a number of years ago. Uh, our son John worked for them for a few years, and we were down there, and we were just kind of considering and looking at persecution and how we can help Christians who are suffering around the globe. And there was a lot of sharing stories of Christians suffering and being persecuted for Christ today. It was a, a humbling and a challenging time as we were down there for them. In fact, I was asked on Sunday morning while y'all were meeting up here, we were meeting down there, and they had asked me to kind of give a teaching on a theology of persecution. What is persecution and why does it happen? And so it's a humbling and challenging thing when we consider it, but the question for you and me is, is that something for those Christians over there, or is persecution something, in fact, that we should all expect as just a part of the normal Christian life? 
The Apostle Paul answers that question in our section today and actually throughout the letter of 2 Timothy. So we're going to dive in and look at it. Now, we begin by taking a look at the precious deposit of the gospel because central in this chapter we're going to see is Paul's concern for the gospel. The gospel is central. If you notice in verse 8, right at the beginning, and then in verses 10 to 11, Paul mentions the gospel three times. In verse 8 he says, join with me in suffering for the gospel. It's not just suffering in general, it's suffering for the gospel that is his concern. In verse 10, he says, Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then in verse 11, the NIV translates it, and of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. In the Greek, it's actually a pronoun because Greek likes long run-on sentences. That's good Greek. It's not good English. So the NIV has broken it up. In the Greek, it's just a pronoun that refers back. It says, he brought light, uh, life and immortality to light through the gospel, of which I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. So the word gospel is not technically there, but it really is. It's the point. Three times Paul's going back and saying, look, Timothy, you suffer for the gospel. I was appointed a herald of the gospel, and it's for the gospel that I am suffering. Because I'm proclaiming the gospel, this is why I suffer. But it's not just that he uses the word gospel or the pronoun referring to it these three times. It's pointed to a number of other ways in the passage. Notice he begins the section with Timothy by saying, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Now, if you are using another version, it may say of the testimony of our Lord. It actually is a noun there. Though what Paul's really talking about here is, Timothy, you know who Jesus is, and this testimony you're supposed to proclaim. That's really kind of the point of the passage. And that testimony is not something Jesus himself talked about. Here, Paul's not talking about what Jesus said before Pilate. He's saying, we know who Jesus is, we know the gospel, and we're supposed to take it out and explain it to others. So even here, the gospel is central. But even more than that, in verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us an encapsulation of the gospel. And in fact, it's very, very similar to what Greg Younger prayed this morning out of Ephesians chapter 1. Notice in verses 9 and 10, Paul says that God has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done. See, this is the gospel. The rest of the religions in the world want to say, what do I do to get myself before God? But the gospel says it's not because of anything you have done. Secondly, it's actually based on God's purpose and grace. It's not based on something in us. It's based on something in God, his own purpose and grace. Thirdly, to show that it couldn't have been us, it was given to us in Christ Jesus before time. See, the gospel comes to us because in time I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. Every work I do is tainted by sin, but Paul says this all began before time even began. You weren't even here when God was purposing and planning this in Christ. But he says, but it was revealed in the coming of Christ Jesus our Savior, there in verse 10. And what he came to do was nothing less than to destroy death and bring to light immortality and eternal life. All of that is the gospel. Paul, even though he's writing to Timothy, who knows all of this, he's saying this is so central I can't help but keep reminding it. If you, if you get Paul to open his mouth, gospel's going to spill out. And it's going to spill out very quickly and very completely consistently. And a few verses further, he brings this up to Timothy again in verses 13 and 14. He says, Timothy, what you've heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Now that phrase sounds a little unusual to us. Actually, the word sound is usually kind of a medical term. And it means the good teaching, the healthy teaching. It's actually used eight times 
between 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It's kind of a phrase Paul's thinking about a lot later in his life. And he's saying, look, all of you are struggling that there are people who are teaching false things. Timothy, what you heard from me, the gospel, that's the pattern of sound teaching. I want you to keep it in mind. In verse 14, he refers to it as the good deposit. Timothy, I received the gospel. I've given it to you as a good deposit, and your job is to guard it. The sound teaching you watch me do week after week, month after month, as you were part of my team, the gospel, I have deposited with you, and you have got to guard it. It's been entrusted to you, and you have a responsibility to guard it. So right up front, before we talk about anything else, about being ashamed or about suffering, we remember that what is central here is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, it is the most precious gift you and I have been given. I do not care what else you have, what riches you have, what other things you have been given in this life. There is nothing more precious than the gospel because the gospel is the truth of God's grace, of Christ's life and his death for us, of the defeat of death and the offer of eternal life. That's what verses 9 and 10 are about. And there is nothing more important because this life comes and this life goes. One thing is certain, whether you live 20 years or 50 years or 90 years or 110 years, you are going to die. And you are going to stand in front of a holy God. And on that day, you and I are not going to be thinking, I wish I had had an extra home, a better car, more money. All you're going to be thinking about is the gospel. Because when you're standing in front of a holy God, that is what matters. And so this is why Paul tells Timothy, you've got to guard it. It's a deposit. You, you are like you know, a, a banker or a guy that works in one of those trucks. You are armed to the teeth. You are guarding this because, Timothy, it is the most precious deposit on this planet. It was given to you. Make sure it's not lost. Make sure it is not distorted Keep it, because it will be an unmitigated disaster if the gospel is distorted or the gospel is lost. There is nothing worse could happen on this planet than the gospel be lost. And in fact, it's so important, I will remind us, and this is going to be a theme that we will come back to all the way until we come to the Lord's table. Thankfully, it's not up to Timothy to do it in his own strength. Notice what Paul says, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I love the Holy Spirit who lives in us, not just in you, Timothy, not just in me as an apostle, not just a few of us. Every believer is given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And so every believer can be part of guarding the deposit of the gospel. It's not unique to Timothy. It's for all of us. I remind you that throughout this letter, Paul's writing to Timothy, but he's assuming that it's going to be read to the church, that the whole church is going to hear. There's elements of that throughout. And Paul here is saying, look, we've all been given the Holy Spirit. We've all got to keep the pattern of sound teaching. It is all about the gospel. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit is here to empower us. However, there are two requirements. As we're accessing the power of the Holy Spirit, there are two requirements to guard the deposit of the gospel, and that's what we'll spend the rest of the morning on. And the two requirements are to guard the deposit of the gospel, we must not be ashamed. And number two, to guard the deposit of the gospel, we must be willing to suffer. Those who are ashamed will not guard the deposit and those who shrink back at suffering will not guard the deposit. So let's talk about those two things. The first thing is Paul is concerned that Timothy not be ashamed of the gospel. Notice in the passage in verse 8, verse 12, and verse 16, three times he brings up this theme. He says, so it's his first command to Timothy, so do not 
be ashamed of the gospel. Timothy, you cannot do that. In verse 12, I, this is why I'm suffering, because I'm proclaiming the gospel, yet I am not ashamed. And then down in verse 16, that uh, the household of Nesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So the first of the two key commands to Timothy, which are required for him to guard the deposit, is do not be ashamed. That's why Paul keeps coming back to it. Because as Paul's sitting there, he's nearing death. There is a key thing that's turning over in his mind. And that is, if somehow we can be pressured into being ashamed of the gospel, it's a disaster. We cannot become ashamed of the gospel. Now, notice he specifically tells Timothy there in verse 8, he says, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Or as I said, it's technically a noun, the, the testimony of our Lord. But notice he defines it there in verse 8. He says, join with me in suffering for the gospel. So this is all about the gospel. Paul is telling Timothy, you cannot be ashamed of the gospel. And it's an important theme in Paul's writings. Scott began the meeting today, and we ended our singing time with the song that Marty Herzog wrote that's built on Romans 1.16. And Paul, writing to the Roman Christians whom he's never met, at the very beginning of his letter says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation. Now this shouldn't bring up a question to you. Why would I be ashamed of the gospel? Why would I be ashamed to say that God saved me, not because of anything I've done, but because of his own purpose and grace that was given to me in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, who, and it's been revealed in this time in the coming of Jesus Christ, and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Why would I be ashamed of that? You should ask yourself that question because that's what Timothy has to think through. And the answer is there's basically two reasons we might be ashamed. Number one, we are tempted to be ashamed because the gospel is foolishness to this lost world. The world does not hear this and say, that's a brilliant message. The world hears this and says, what a bunch of cockamamie stuff. You don't seriously believe that, do you? And this is no different today than it was back in the first century. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he goes on and says, look, it's, you know, it's foolishness to the Greeks and it's, it's weakness to the Jews, but to, to those who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God and it is the power of God. People in Paul's day laughed and scoffed at the gospel, and they still do today. If you don't believe it, just go into public and start talking about it, and you'll find out real quick people think you're crazy. And it's not a surprise. We're told right off that is how they're going to respond. But see, there's a temptation. Unless you have mental or personality disorder, you don't like being mocked, nor do I. We, we don't enjoy that. We want people to approve of us. And so when pressure is put on you and me to say, eh, you know, just you need to pipe that down. Don't be talking about that. that. That's craziness. You can't seriously believe that. There is a temptation to become ashamed of the gospel, to worry more about what people around me think than what God has actually said. But see, this is why Paul tells us, both in 1 Corinthians, he goes on and says, look, it's the power of God. And in Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. And so everyone else around can say this is foolishness, but it is not foolishness. Now the second reason which Paul brings up here in this passage is we can be tempted to not only be ashamed of the gospel, but to be ashamed of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And especially to be ashamed to not want to stand with them as they suffer. Because if I stand with them, then suddenly the fire comes on to me. 
and it makes me want to abandon them. So notice in verse 8, he says, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of this testimony of the gospel or ashamed of me, his prisoner. And in fact, Paul says later on, look, everybody in Asia deserted me. When I got arrested and I got put in jail, there was danger if you showed up and associated with me. And so a lot of people made themselves scarce. We're going to see some examples of that in just a few minutes. Now, um, and we'll talk about that then, but It's quite popular today. Let me say, there is a lot that is going on today of people saying, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. Now, let me tell you, nobody knows more the problems of the church than I do. I've been a believer now for 44 years. I've been 28 years as an elder in this congregation, and for 26 of those, I've been working full time. I'm fully well aware of the problems of the church. But let me say this as clearly as I know how. If you say, I'm fine with Jesus, I just don't like the church, you don't like Jesus. It's his bride. I've said this before, you you will never get on my good side by saying, Brett, I think you're a good guy, but your wife, okay, this is going to be a short conversation. That needs to stop, okay? And my wife will tell you my sanctification does not rise to that level, Okay? I've, I, in, in my lesser days of sanctification, I've threatened bodily harm to people that I thought were being very disrespectful to my wife. This is the bride of Christ. These are our brothers and sisters. Now let me say, do believers sometimes act foolishly and suffer for it? They do. They do. But we can never be ashamed of Jesus his gospel, or his people. And there's like a cottage industry out there to make us ashamed of them. But let me say, it is a short step from being ashamed of fellow believers to becoming disillusioned with Christ and his gospel. And we cannot do it. And furthermore, let me say this as clearly as I can. We have to remember that the ultimate foolishness you will ever see or I will ever see. The most shameful thing you are ever going to observe or encounter is the rejection of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and his saving gospel. That is what is shame worthy. That is what ought to be uh, spoken against. But today, it's, it's all kinds of popular, even among Christians, to get out there and say, hey, I'm cooler than those believers over there. Let me tell you, what's cool is not being under the wrath of God. What's cool is recognizing that the fundamental reality of the entire universe is the triune God who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's cool. It is utter foolishness to mock that. And it is nothing less than people doing what Proverbs calls mocking that is going on all around us. And there are people who are trying to divide that, and brothers and sisters, we can't. The church will do foolish, embarrassing things at times. It just does. But we have to stand up and say, these are my brothers and sisters. They're my because what really matters, the fundamental issue is the gospel. And so Christians have to never be ashamed of the gospel, even though the culture around it calls us weak or foolish or bigoted, we stand there and say, it's the power of God to save, whatever they may think. Now, the second part that comes from this, and it flows inexorably from it, if you are not ashamed of the gospel, it will lead to suffering, just the normal Christian life. So Paul wants Timothy to know that suffering is part of the Christian life. Now, why do I say this? Well, in verse 8, he says, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And the text we're going to look at next week, 2 Timothy 2, 3, he says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The 
the thing that I've got highlighted there, endure hardship, and it's really endure hardship with us, the exact same word as suffering with us. It's the same Greek word. The NIV just translates it differently, but it's the exact same Greek word. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he says, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship. It's the same Greek verb, it's just missing the prefix with us, because in Greek you can shove a prefix like with us on the front of a verb. Same verb. Paul is telling Timothy over and over again, you have to suffer. There's, there is hardship that comes with being faithful for the gospel. And so he's also saying, look, in case anybody tells you the reason I'm suffering and I'm locked up right now is because I'm just a cantankerous old so-and-so, that's not why. It's because of the gospel. And if you're going to guard the deposit, Timothy, if you are going to be faithful to the gospel, if you are not going to be ashamed to the gospel, you're going to suffer with me. That's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, Paul goes on in 2 Timothy 3, and this is the kind of verses that I wish were not there. Okay, because it'd be nice to say, well, that was the apostles. And Timothy, you know, he foolishly joined Paul's band, so he gets it with Paul. But see, Paul removes that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, he's saying, Timothy, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, uh, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. Same word again. Sufferings are there. What kind of things happened to me? All these things that I've endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And then notice in verse 12, in fact everyone. Okay, who in here is included in everyone? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. It's very simple. You want to live a godly life, you are going to come under pressure. Make no mistake about it. Paul is very, very clear. So his message to his spiritual son, Timothy, is that suffering and persecution are part of the normal Christian life for all faithful followers. That's actually what I called my little thing last week as we were talking, is the normal Christian life. What we hear about going on in Nigeria, what we hear about happening in Saudi Arabia and Iran, is not the exceptional Christian life. It's the normal Christian life. It's what we should expect. Now, just like I asked why being ashamed, why suffering? Why is that part of the normal Christian life? The answer is not because you and I should go out and seek it, because we're some kind of sadomasochist. That's not why they're suffering. There are two things that prompt it from the surrounding culture. Number one, Paul tells us suffering comes from living a holy life. Living in holiness will bring you in conflict with the unbelieving culture around you. Notice his description in verses 8 and 9. He says, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy life. Literally, it's he called us with a holy calling. But the idea is, look, when you become part of God's holy people, you're going to live in holiness. And the unbelieving culture that surrounds you, that thinks all of this is foolishness, is not going to applaud your moral choices. Notice in 2 Timothy 3.12, it doesn't say that all Christians will be persecuted. It says all who want to live a godly life. See, here's a little secret for you and for me. The world doesn't care if I say I believe in Jesus. They don't care. Fine, whatever. What they do care is when they say, this is how you will conduct yourselves. And when I express to you the way I want to live my life, you will applaud. And when I say, I can't, that's actually foolishness. That actually is sinful conduct. I can't applaud. Now we've got a problem. 
Peter tells the believers there, if you read in Peter's letters, he said that they can't believe you're not rushing with them into the way that you used to live, that you're not joining with them. If you're not understanding this, looking at our present culture, you're not awake. You're not paying attention. We are getting shouted down over all kinds of issues, that we live in a culture that is asking us to embrace its cultural decay and its debauchery. And a faithful Christian must say, no, I can't embrace it. Sorry, cannot participate. Now let me be really clear, I'm going to come back to this a couple times. This is about the gospel. I can suffer for political issues or other choices I make life. That has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about here. Okay, And it may be worth suffering for some of those other things. I may choose, I believe, so strongly in this political issue, I'm willing to endure hardship over it. And that's fine, but don't call it the gospel. Don't say that that's suffering for Jesus. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about things the Scripture directly speaks to. And the Scripture speaks to plenty. It speaks to all kinds of stuff about human sexuality that'll get you in hot water today. It speaks to all kinds of things about us not being motivated and driven by materialism and greed. It speaks to all kinds of things about how we are not to participate in gossip and things like that. And if you don't get with the program, you will be ostracized for that. And so any because the gospel is viewed as, viewed as foolishness uh, and the call to holiness of the faith is viewed as bigotry and hatred by the world around us. See, that's what goes on. What you believe is foolish, and if you kept it to yourself, that would be one thing. But now you're getting bigoted. But no, I'm not. I'm just speaking the truth of the way things actually are. But that's where the suffering will come in. And so any attempt to embrace the biblical teaching on godliness and to live a life that is in line with that, uh, with true holiness, it will be ridiculed. You will find yourself ostracized by the unbelieving, rebellious world. That's just part and parcel. And might I add, that's not unique today. I mean, you know, when I was a young Marine, there were certain standards and things we did. I can remember full well when they were throwing a bachelor party, we were all told we were all contributing, and then I found out what we were hiring was a young girl to pop out of a cake. And you can imagine or don't imagine what she was going to be dressed in or not dressed in. And when I said, yeah, I'm a Christian, I can't participate in that, they said, that is so wonderful. We applaud you for this, right? That, that is not what my fellow Marines said. Let me tell you, there was pressure. And I just simply said, if you think I'm going to be ashamed of the gospel, and you think that is going to make me pitch in 10 bucks, you're out of your mind. It ain't going to happen. And I don't care what you think. I care what Jesus thinks. Because on judgment day, he'll be on the throne, not you. Okay? That was, that was 40 years ago. But it was just simply part and parcel. I'm not participating in that. I'm not going along with all of this. And if that means I'm cut out, if it means I'm ostracized, if it means I'm laughed at, if it means when peer evals come out, you all are going to mark me down, okay. Again, what matters is that Jesus gives me the thumbs up on Judgment Day. That's what I'm concerned about. Friends, this is what we're talking about. The second thing is that suffering comes from proclaiming the gospel, okay? Notice in verses 11 and 12, Paul says, of the gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. A herald is a person who literally announces. They cry out to the town the news that is there. We're called to be heralds and uh, to teach the gospel. He says, that is why I'm suffering. That's what Paul says. It's not just because I believe the gospel. It's because I'm a proclaimer of the gospel. Because I'm a herald of the gospel. Because I am taking it forth. That is why I'm suffering. But I'm not ashamed. I don't care. I will continue to proclaim the gospel. And so 
He's telling us that this is what he's called to do, and it's the activity of actually proclaiming the gospel is why he's suffering. It is why Timothy will suffer. And brothers and sisters, it's what will bring suffering down on your head and mine. Again, you can believe what you want, stay hunkered down, nobody cares. But it's when you actually proclaim. I remember another conversation at the academy. There was a whole thing going on, and somebody had said, you know, America's great because Americans are good. It was at this big gathering. We all had to go to his midst. And the next day, I'm just sitting down eating lunch, and somebody said, you know, what did you think about it? And I said, well, America's not great because Americans are good because we're not. We're sinful. Oh, my word. I was a pork chop at a kosher wedding. You'd have thought that, you know, I'd spit on the Pope or something. I mean, I don't know what it was. They were all over me. What do you mean we're not good? It's like, I mean, I live with you. I'm in your room. You're not good. Neither am I. We're sinful. Oh, man, I don't want to hear this. Well, too bad. You asked, so you're going to get it. That's the way it is. They don't care what I think. It's when I start to proclaim it. When I speak, the gospel is what brings it for us. And again, this is not about other issues. This isn't me proclaiming I didn't like this rule at the academy or I don't want to get with this. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about the gospel. But if you proclaim the gospel, and it's specifically what he's calling Timothy to do and also us, that when we do that, it is going to bring suffering. Now, Paul concludes then in verses 15 to 17, and I'm going to wrap it up and we're going to apply the word, but he gives two examples there. You may notice, he said, you know, look, everybody in Asia deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. These people, they didn't run out and say, we've decided we don't agree with the gospel anymore. What Paul's saying is, but when the rubber met the road, they got quiet. They walked away. They said, oh, I'm, I'm not sure I know who that Paul guy is. Really? You knew who I was before? See, they don't want to stand there. They don't want to be with him. They don't want to get engaged and involved. Brothers, this has always been the problem. If you want to read another example of it, read Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. He had to speak this to the pastors down in Birmingham and say, some of y'all are with me in private, but when it gets into the public, suddenly nobody's around. You can't do that. That's not what's going to happen. And Paul's saying the same thing here. When it came time, these people were gone. And he said, but there is an example, Timothy, that I want you to pay attention to. That's Onesiphorus and his household. He's not ashamed. He refreshed me. You remember how he did that in Ephesus? Well, I want you to know he came to Rome. He searched around until he found where I was. And he came down and said, I know who that guy is. And I don't care. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Paul. I'm not ashamed of his chains. And I'll take whatever will come. And he's being held up as an example. Unashamed, willing to suffer. So here's how we apply this and we come to the Lord's table. Number one, do I see the call to be unashamed to suffer for the gospel? Again, it's not just for Timothy. Paul's fully well aware he's writing this through Timothy to the church. And it comes down to us. Again, I want to remind us, it's not about a sadomasochistic approach to life. It's the reality of embracing and proclaiming the gospel in the midst of an unbelieving culture. And it's always been there. In the midst of Christendom, where we had tried to wed the church and the state, which was a really bad idea, but we were trying to do it. There were still those who were suffering for the gospel. There were still those who were standing up and pointing things out that the Scripture calls, and it was bringing trouble down on their heads. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is worthy of our unashamed proclamation and acceptance of any suffering that comes. It does not matter. I could bring up, you know, Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words before this sinful and unbelieving generation, there'll be a day you'll be standing in front of God and needing me to be proud of you. These are, these are tough words. But Jesus said, look, just expect it. It's, you're going to be ashamed of me 
or you're going to be ashamed of the culture, but you're going to be ashamed of one or the other. Which will it be? And so I suspect, personally, not a prophet, but as I look around at our culture, it's going to be a higher and higher price to be paid. There's going to be more call for you and I to keep our mouths closed about the gospel. There's going to be more and more pressure that when you proclaim these things and you list what the Scripture calls as sin, you're a bigot. And we're going to have to stand there and say, it's not true. The reason I'm telling you is I do love you. I do care for you. That's probably what is coming our way. I hope to God I'm wrong. I'm praying for third grade awakening because I don't see any other way out of it. Okay? Again, join Maryland Praise this week because we need to be praying. But we've got to resolve now to boldly and clearly embrace, proclaim, and live in light of God's Word. And then the consequences fall where they may. That's just what we do. If you've watched the news in the last couple of days, this wasn't for the gospel necessarily, but it's been amazing for me to watch the president of the Ukraine when we said, hey, do you want to get out? We'll get you out. And his response is, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm standing at my post. Doesn't matter. Come what may, but I'll be found doing what I'm supposed to be doing. If he can do that for a political regime, we can certainly do that for the gospel. Now, the last thing, and with this we come to the table, and it leads into it so well. I want to remind us that we do this by the power of God's Spirit. You might be saying, well, Brett, you know, you kind of were that weird Marine thing. That has nothing to do with it. That has nothing. Marines can crumble in the face of this. And some little old lady somewhere can stand boldly for this. Because this isn't about your personal character or personality. It's about drawing upon the power of God's Spirit. I remind us from last week that Paul told Timothy, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. And then he tells him, remember in verse uh, 8, he said, Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or shame to me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's a re- this, the very next verse. He's saying the spirit that God gave you. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's the power of God. That's how you're going to do it. Verse 14, Timothy, you've got to guard the deposit. You've got to keep up. You've got to do all this. How are you going to do it? By the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I'm not calling you to be men and women of courage and power on your own. I'm calling you to draw upon the powerful Spirit of God that lives in you. Whether it's your tendency or nature or not is beside the point. You can rise up and be bold as a lion because the Spirit of God is in you, no matter who else you are. The Spirit dwells in every believer to empower them to receive, to guard, to proclaim, and to live in obedience to the gospel and the word of God. God, no matter what goes on in our culture around us. This is why we got to stir up the gift of God in us, stirring up the Spirit's presence and power so that we don't shrink in the day of struggle. If you didn't get to listen to After Hours this past Tuesday, I talked about how to stir up the Spirit's presence in our life, how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we need to do that, and we need to do it every single day. You can't take a day off. Because you're engaged in battle, and so am I. Now, this is why we come to the Lord's table, and this is why we do it each and every week, because how many of you need strength to do what I'm talking about? I mean, every one of us needs strength. Again, unless you've got some kind of mental issue, you don't like this. I would rather have everybody applaud me. So would you. But we don't live by that. We live for an audience of one, and we need empowerment from him. And God has promised to meet us here by his Spirit 
and to empower us. Not because it's the greatest ceremony in the world. This thing is just simple. Look, there's, there's nothing here. I mean, I would have expected Jesus to give us something with more pizzazz. But see, th- this is it. Because it's not dependent on the bread. It's not dependent on the, the fruit of the vine that I'm pouring out. It's not dependent on my ceremony. It's dependent on the Holy Spirit coming and meeting us. But here's good news. He's promised to do that if we receive in faith. So come to the table. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, come confessing your need and receiving His grace. So I'm going to read a passage in Hebrews to us. Hear it, and then we will come to the table. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is how we cannot be ashamed. It doesn't matter what you do to me. You're going to bring me into the presence of God? Sounds terrible. (laughs) For surely is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has taken our humanity, our flesh, and our blood to work salvation for us. And he is not ashamed to receive as a brother and a sister everyone who repents of their sin and looks to him for salvation. And all who do so are welcome at this table. For what I receive from the Lord, I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead. Brothers and sisters, and let's open up the packet with the bread. Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? So writes the Apostle Paul. Father, though our sins separated us from you, and though we have often walked in paths of unrighteousness, you were pleased to call us to yourself through Christ. So we take this bread, a participation in the body of Christ, confessing our sins and professing that we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is your power to save everyone who believes. Take and eat. And writing by the Spirit, the Apostle proclaims, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Lord Jesus, through your life and death, you work salvation for us. Though we had turned away, you were not ashamed to call us your very brothers and sisters, and to confess us 
before your Father. Today, we take this cup as a sign of our confession of you, proclaiming you as our Lord and Savior, willing to be counted as fools by this world that we might be faithful unto you. Thank you for your atoning blood, our only hope of salvation. Take and drink. Let's stand together, and I'm going to call out for God's Holy Spirit to come upon us and empower us. Join with me. Holy Spirit, you are the empowering presence of God. We confess our need for you, for in ourselves we are timid and weak, prone to wander and to be swayed by this world. So come upon us now in power, O Holy Spirit. Work through us, healing and performing mighty miracles in the name of Jesus. Set our tongues ablaze with the gospel and open the hearts of those to whom we speak and for whom we pray. Give us a fresh vision of the glory of God, the beauty of His holiness, and the eternal reward awaiting His faithful servants. O Spirit of God, do this, that we might join with your faithful servants through the ages in bearing the sufferings which come our way for the sake of the gospel. We humbly ask that you would do this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And those who agree say, Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord give strength to you, for you are his people. May the Lord bless you with his peace. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.